It is my very great and high privilege and pleasure to be with you today. I trust you know how blessed you are to have Mike Ramsdale as your pastor, David Alexander, Sharon, and have a worship team like Jason and Stephanie and this whole crew. Aren't, aren't, aren't they... They've gifted us. They've gifted us with their songs. So I want to invite you to let that music be your prayer. Can't help but remember when I was in seminary, I had the privilege of studying under a very famous theologian, world-renowned, and he used to say to us, you know, we do theology. Theology means talk about God in order that we might do doxology. Doxology means praise God. Worthy are you. Worthy are you, O Lord. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, I'm Mike Lowry. I'm the bishop of the Central Texas Conference, which is your conference. So this is one of about 320 churches that I have oversight of. In fact, the title bishop comes out of the Bible, comes out of 1 and 2 Timothy and other places. It simply means the overseer. If I remember my history right, it was actually a term used for garbage collectors in the Roman Empire. So... I'm kind of here today. And this is the symbol for the office of bishop. When a bishop's leading worship, you carry your, it's called a crozier. It's Latin, really just means a shepherd's staff. And as I tell people, in this case, it takes an extremely skinny-necked sheep to be caught by, by this staff. But that's what it stands for. It's the symbol of the office. And so we come today together to be the people of God. We come to put our lives under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and together under his authority. Ask the Lord to teach us. To use the words of my mouth, the thoughts, the meditations each and every person has in this room. Both individually and and ours together. For the Lord to speak through them to our lives. So let's bow in prayer. Great are you, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. So, Lord, this day we come before you, first, foremost, and always, with our praise. And we ask, O Lord, that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of our hearts and minds together, O Lord, might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Well, have you enjoyed the Olympics? I mean, i got to tell you, I love them even when there isn't an American in the hunt for, a, for the podium. It's just kind of fun to watch all that. And about two weeks ago, it started not only with the lighting of the flame, but one of the very first events, if you'll recall, back a couple of weeks ago, was the biathlon. And athletes competed in that rigorous athletic event that involves a combination of cross-country skiing and rifle shooting uh, at targets in a select way. In fact, last night, yesterday, late yesterday afternoon, if you watched, they had the closing biathlete competition. It was a team competition on it. It's an incredible event full of the stamina and the skill that only something like the Olympics can pull together in all its triumphant uh, and exhausting glory.
So I want to invite you to go with me for a moment to that event, to the biathlon, and imagine now that it's a year ago. Just hit the pause button on that Bible passage. I promise you we'll come back to it, okay? And come with me now a year earlier and imagine that they've just selected the U.S. biathlon team after an intensive and grueling competition. And lo and behold, as they've selected this team, um, uh, shortly afterwards there's a car accident and every single member of the team is hurt so that nobody can compete in the games. And Olympic officials are just, they're pulling their hair out like I'd do if I had some. I mean, they just, they don't know what to do uh, and how to replace it. And they, they huddle with executives in Washington with the Speaker of the House and the President, whoever else you want to kind of toss in and stir in the mix. And they do all that kind of activity and finally somebody gets the bright idea that the way we'll replace our biathlon team is we'll write a computer program and it will select the ideal skiers and athletes to compete for us. So the program's written. And they select it and lo and behold somehow some, just hang with me here somehow your name gets on that program because you once skied the double diamond trail at Vail. Never mind that you didn't make it to the bottom. And you get selected. Well, you just, you're overcome. You can't believe yourself. I mean, I'm going to represent, you say to yourself, I'm going to represent the United States of America at the Olympics. And you think, what an honor. What a... I mean, what an honor. And then you think of those neat-looking uniforms, and you think, how cool is this, right? And you decide that you are going to pour out your best effort in the Olympics. You commit your will to competing in the Olympic biathlon races. You dedicate your life to that great, singular, towering purpose to compete in the biathlete event. And then, and then you read up in the ensuing year, you, you talk to experts on how do you run the biathlete? What, what's your, what are the skill tricks that you need when you, when you navigate a, a, a curve? And, and how is it that you go uphill with a kind of skiing motion, with, with the skis almost acting like skates? And you talk to all kinds of people and get all kinds of advice on how you do it. You read, you read books carefully and make notes on, on how you compete in a biathlete competition you scout you scout your opponents who's particularly good on the straightaway and who's better at shooting and you get all that kind of data and for a year you just you just obsess about it so so anytime you show up you show up at the breakfast table you got to tell the kids about you know your dad's going to be in the uh, biathlon competition and you and you got to talk to everybody you can about it and it just becomes so much a part of your being that your friends are sick of talking to you in fact they want to avoid you but your will is a hundred knots a thousand percent sold out on competing the biathlete competition 
Then at long last, the time comes to go over. You put, your, you put your uniform on, you fly over. You're in that opening ceremony, proudly walking into the stadium, representing the United States of America. The flame is lit, and the next day, there you are, lined up at the starting line with your skis on, your rifle strapped to your back, ready to compete in the biathlon competition. And the gun goes off and you shoot to the front. I mean, those skis are slicing through the snow as you tear out. And for a hundred yards, you lead the Olympic biathlon competition. Unfortunately, it's a number of kilometers, so you're in trouble fairly quickly. And by 200 yards, you're starting to labor a bit. People start sliding past you as if they're just floating by. And by half a kilometer, the end of the line passes you. And all you can do is, between gasps of breath, is sort of manage a wave. Finally, you ski into the first of the, of the shooting positions. There are a number in that race on the way. And you take the rifle off your back and you lie down. But your heart is pumping so hard you you can barely aim the gun and and it's kind of bouncing around and your first shot you hit a woman in the far left on a, actually another course in the shoulder and you're trying to correct but you're so worn out and exhausted by then you you shoot on the right side and a couple of school kids duck for cover. I mean, it just is a disaster. You put your skis back on. You start out with all your might, and 50 yards later, you're just collapsed in a heap. Because even though your will is dedicated 1,000% to competing, you forgot to train. You forgot to train. Well, I want to talk to you biblically about the triumph of training over trying. And I want to do it by anchoring it in a passage which the Apostle Paul carefully teaches the young Timothy as he starts his ministry work and how he writes him in excessive care. He says, if you will point these things out to the believer, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus who's been trained by the word of the faith and the good teaching that you carefully follow. You'll be, in this translation, nourished on the truths of the faith. Now I propose that as we're looking together on what it means to be a finisher, what it means to, to take your life and, and finish it well and to do that at whatever stage in life you are, whether you're 5 or 55 or 105, I propose that in fact we need to let this passage teach us. We need to do just what that opening scripture line says. We need to point these things out to each other and in a sense in our time together here dialogue about what does it mean? What does it mean to live the truth of this passage that the Apostle Paul so desperately wishes to convey to young Timothy? You see there, there is a reality to life actually to all of life, that simply says to us that trying is not enough. No matter how ardent our will, impassioned our zeal, or assiduous our convictions. 
Spiritual transformation is not a matter of just trying harder, but of training wisely. In fact, training wisely is true in almost every aspect of life. I mean, think about it for a minute. Think about it for a minute. If you want to be a good computer programmer, what do you do? Well, you learn to train yourself, right? Not only do you read manuals and other things, but you put yourself under the coaching and teaching somebody else, and you work at learning how to do source code and how to program the computer and how to work with the various components. You learn what a patch is. You don't think it's like I do. I think a patch is taking the back off and putting a Band-Aid on something in the machine and then closing it back up. You learn the difference. You train yourself on how to be a good computer programmer and somebody who is knowledgeable about working in that machine. Or, or consider for a difference. If you're a stockbroker, what do you do to do that well? Well, you train yourself in stockbroking. You learn to understand the economics of, uh, of the stocks you're dealing with and, and how they fit in not only with the national but with the global economic scene. You, you learn what companies are reliable and what aren't. You study the way the market works, how arbitrage happens and the components of a well-managed mutual fund. You train yourself. You train yourself to be a good stockbroker. Or take somebody who's a firefighter or a policeman. What do they do all the time? All the time. Why, they're engaged in training. So, so you don't show up at the fire as a fireman or a firewoman. You don't show up at the fire and go, God, I wonder, anybody got an idea what we do next? You know, you know who on the team is going to hook up the hose and who's going to man the nozzle and you, and, and you know who's going to move forward to the building. I mean, you, you train yourselves as a team to do this well. John Ortberg, a marvelous Christian pastor, a Presbyterian out in California, wrote a book, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, entitled The Life You've Always Wanted. It's one of those books I recommend to people that you run, don't walk to get. And he writes in that about the triumph of training over trying. He says, quote, respecting the distinction between training and merely trying is the key to the transformation in every aspect of life. The need for preparation or training does not stop, he writes. It does not stop when it comes to learning the art of forgiveness or joy, or courage. In other words, it applies to, healthy and, to a healthy and vibrant spiritual life just as it does to physical and intellectual activity. We know. We know that one of the things that makes a marriage good is that you train yourself. You train yourself to relate well with your spouse. Now, I want you to get this with some care here. It doesn't mean you train your spouse. <laughs> Let that scripture speak into the heart of your being. Train yourself in godliness. Or another translation says, train yourself in, in holy living you know people ask me uh, am I training myself as I relate to my children 
or my parents? It's a legitimate question for our lives. We long for, all of us, the the life we've always dreamed of. We've always wanted the life God, in fact, wants for us. And it's in this training that the Bible tells us we move towards godliness or holiness. In training ourselves to new habits in heart and life, it makes all the difference in the world for the way we live. So train yourself to be godly. The need for preparation or training does not stop, said Ortberg. It does not stop when it comes to learning the art of forgiveness or joy or courage. The goal of our training is a life that is lived in the presence of the Lord. It is transforming our lives to be more Christ-like. Look, uh, look at a minute how the passage says, train yourself for a holy life. While physical training has some value, training and holy living is useful for everything. Verse 8. It has promise for this life now and for the life to come. Friends, training triumphs over trying in ways that truly lead us to the life we've always wanted. One of the problems with so many of us in our Christian walk of life is that we sort of have a New Year's Eve resolution view of what it means to live as a better Christian. You know what it's like on New Year's Eve. You think to yourself, well, what am I going to do better next year? I'm going to lose some weight and I'm going to exercise more and, and, and maybe I'll pray more next year. You know, you make a kind of list of things. I say to myself, well, I'm going to have a better relationship with my older brother. He's my older brother and that's a long story and I need therapy, but that's, we don't need to go there either. But you know what I mean. You make your list of things you want to improve on, right? And we really try hard for what? A couple of weeks, maybe a month if you're lucky. And then after a while it falls apart because we we don't train ourselves relationally or spiritually. In the conviction of this passage, Paul's teaching to young Timothy is, no, you you need to train yourself. In godliness, you, you need to engage not just your will, not just your life, but you need to engage the essence of who you are. A man named Tony Schwartz wrote a, a marvelous book called The Way We're Working Isn't Working, and it shares secular research. And in it, he had this phrase that stuck with me. He said, Will and discipline are wildly overrated. Training triumphs over trying in ways that lead us to the life we've always wanted. And it's here at this essence that the Lord Jesus calls us to be a people of God together, to look at our lives in training over trying. Now, these are spiritual disciplines. That's the term that Christians have developed over 2,000 years to talk about the things we need to learn to train ourselves in. And I want to teach you a different way to look at them. We use the title spiritual disciplines, and we're talking about things like regular Bible reading, a devotional life, regular communion, worship of God, quiet time before the Lord. It's part of what's behind the whole mindfulness the whole mindfulness movement in America, time even at a 
cover article on that recently. These are, these are the spiritual disciplines, the way we train ourselves in holiness. And a different way to think of them is to think of them as the habits of our heart and our life. What are the habits we have for holy living that help us move in training in a way that's deeper and greater? Habits that become a part of who you are. Now stop and think for a moment. All of us, every single one of us, have certain habits that we've just developed in life that that just are a part of who we are. They're a part of our breathing. We actually don't even need to sort of stop and think about them. They're just things we do regularly. An easy habit that most of us have, I have, is that I brush my teeth before I go to bed. You know, I, I, I don't come to bed and talk to my wife and say, I don't know, you think I should brush my teeth tonight? I don't, she's always in favor of that. Um, you know, Right? So you think about that, you think, well, that's a habit of your life. We all have other habits. I'm a coffee drinker. I just love coffee. So I get up in the morning, I think one of God's greatest inventions was the timed coffee pot. Maybe second to that is the Keurig machine, you know? So I get up in the morning, that coffee pot's set, I want that cup of coffee. Well, when he's talking about spiritual training, When he says physical training in verse 8 has value in every part of life, but spiritual training for life here and forever, he's talking about learning to live in a way that's holy, that takes your whole life and lifts it now and forever. And he's saying you develop these habits of devotional life, of prayer, of Bible study, of worship, of communion, of quiet time before God. You develop these habits in a way that leads to depth. You see, you see, our habits are not necessarily unpleasant. And often when we think spiritual disciplines, we think drudgery. But that's not what God's after here. Not at all. God's after a a way of living that becomes a part of who we are so that they take on an aspect of joyous living. I have a friend of mine who routinely jogs every morning. And I once asked him what it would be like if he stopped doing that. And he said, oh, he said, that's my quiet time. I pray while I jog. He said, that isn't a labor for me at all. That's a love. Now, maybe for you it's not jogging. Maybe it's just a few minutes sitting quietly by yourself in prayer before the Lord. Or perhaps for you it's listening to some Christian music that that takes your heart and sets it soaring. You see, the spiritual disciplines exist not for God's sake, but for our sake. God doesn't need the spiritual disciplines. God doesn't need to practice prayer. God is prayer. God doesn't need to practice quiet. God controls the whole universe. All right? God doesn't need it. You and I are the ones that need to develop the habits of holy living, the spiritual disciplines that allow life to slow down and recenter on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's be upfront about this, folks. 
we, we live in a culture that actually works against this. It's, it's nobody's fault. It's just the way our culture goes. And I have a conviction that we, live at a, that we operate at a pace of living that is in fact too hectic to sustain. That's why we have talk about burnout and other such things. And spiritual disciplines are for our sake so that life can slow down and center and we can be more holy. And through that, we're more committed in our relationships with those we love the most, our parents, our children, our spouse, our friends. Through that, we're, we're more ethically noble in not just our convictions, but in our actual actions. That's the spiritual disciplines, the habits of the heart that guide us the most. There's a great, great uh, German Christian martyr named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who near the end of his life was held in a concentration camp as a personal prisoner of Adolf Hitler. In fact, he was executed just a couple of days before, before Allied troops liberated the concentration camp. He wrote a series of letters to his fiancée and some of his other friends while he was in prison that had been studied and become a mini-Christian classic called Letters and Papers from Prison. And in there, just a few days before he died, he wrote, quote, Happy are those who know that discipleship means the life which springs from grace, that is God's free and unmerited love. And that grace simply means discipleship. Christianity is said without discipleship. And that he means disciplines, habits of the heart, is Christianity without Christ. You know, I, I think of habits and, and, and the way they can shape us. I, I keep remembering my time playing basketball in high school. I, I actually was on the varsity team for one year in high school. I was short but slow. And, uh, and I, I can, to this day, it's literally 45 years later, I can remember Coach McGee screaming at us to use the same motion in shooting our free throws. The same motion every time. And you watch an NBA game, watch the Mavericks or something, watch these better players who shoot routinely 80% of their free throws, and it's not because they have to get to the line and think about what they're doing. It's because they've shot so many shots in practice. It just has that motion. Well, let me tell you, the same is true with our spiritual lives. The same is true in Paul's insistence that we train ourselves in godliness or train ourselves in holy living. Before I became a bishop, I spent 30 years as a pastor of a local church. Pastor of a church very, very similar to this one for a number of years. And I, I can't tell you the number of times I, I've stood in an intensive care unit with loved ones gathered around the bed of one of their family members. And that's not the time you stop to learn how to pray. Don't get me wrong. God will hear any prayer, any prayer you lift there, no matter how poorly lifted. But the training for godliness that can deliver you to that time and to an awareness of the presence of God comes over time. 
you parents of young children. My wife and I have raised a couple. We now have a wonderful granddaughter. If you stop me afterwards, I'll be glad to show you pictures. And, uh, and, and you know, um, in the middle of raising your kids, you get in all kinds of things. All kinds of things. Many of them absolutely wonderful. And, and can we just, mine weren't the only ones that gave us a hard time about going to bed, I know. You know, you get in those kind of scrapes. You know, and when you're in the middle of a scrape with your kid, that's not the time to learn to be a good parent. That's not the time to learn holy living. You, you have to have the habit of the heart that feeds into that. that. That understands that that child of yours is a gift from God and that you've trained yourself as a parent to do your parenting or your grandparenting in a way that's godly. So how do we do it? How do we develop the disciplines or habits of the heart? Well, I can't uh, in any way exhaustively handle this subject, but I want to leave you with a couple of very practical pieces of advice. It involves what we call the spiritual disciplines, what I'm calling the habits, things like Bible study and prayer and silence and worship and communion, etc. Service, by the way, is clearly one of them. But it also involves these things. I think, first of all, we need to learn to catch the wind of the Spirit. That is, we need to look for where the Holy Spirit is operative in our life. Because you see, biblically speaking, we're not meant to do this alone. God in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, works with us. Before I went into the ministry, I was a, a camp director for the YMCA up in Connecticut. And I remember we used to teach 8, 9, 10-year-old boys, 11-year-old boys sailing. And we used these little, uh, little uh, sailing boats called sunfish that were real easy for a kid to learn on. We'd get out on, the, on this lake in the hills of northeastern Connecticut and we'd raise the, the sail and we'd teach the kids to look at how the sail filled with the wind and then to look back out on the lake and to look for the ripples in the water, which was the wind coming across the water, and adjust the sail to catch the wind. Well, I think one of the ways we develop spiritual disciplines or habits of the heart is we learn to adjust ourselves to catch the wind of the Spirit. How does the Spirit speak best to you? Now, secondly... Let me give you, by the way, a real quick practical example of that. For a while, I had a Jesuit uh, priest as, as my spiritual formation coach. And, and he taught me to get in the same chair every day if I could for my devotional time. That just being in that regular spot helped me. Uh, I, I, that's watching the wind on the lake that helped me tune my sail to the Spirit's movement in my life. Now, secondly, I think wise training respects our unique temperaments and gifts because that might work for me but might not work for you. You're a unique person. So you need to understand what's going to work temperamentally for you. We're wired differently. We know that. My wife and I, as I said, have raised two kids and they're as different as they can be and I swear they're ours. I mean, I was in the room when they were delivered. But they're different. 
A number of years back, I, I went to a retreat center in south of Kingsville called Leib Shemay. And it's one of these uh, utterly silent retreat centers. You went there for a day, and I went with a really close friend of mine, a guy I was with in seminary. Our families have vacation together over the years. In fact, we're planning a trip to England uh, uh, this coming summer together. And, and, and he is one of these quiet, thoughtful, contemplative kind of guys. The whole thing, the whole retreat was in silence. So when we sat down at the, at the lunch meal, you simply would uh, motion for things and you couldn't say anything. My, we got to the end of that day and drove off. My friend thought it was the greatest day he'd ever had in his life. And I, I, and I had to tell him that by 2 o'clock that afternoon I was out in the woods talking to trees because it was just driving me. It, it didn't fit my temperament. Do you hear me? Now, I want to say a word here to spouses, but it applies to friends and to those of you who are single as well. Don't try and make your spouse or your friend have the same temperament you have. They don't. Look at the wind of the Spirit and how your sail best catches it, and then adjust it. Train yourself, train yourself, says the Apostle, in holy living, in godliness. And then the third thing I want to mention here is that develop habits... Or, or developing habits or wise training depends on the season of life you're in. So let me say that again. It depends on the season of life you're in. So what will work when you're an empty nester probably will not work when you have young children at home. I don't know about you, but quiet time early in the morning with a two-year-old screaming to be fed never worked for Jolyn and I. When I'm 63 and the children both live on the East Coast, they have the audacity, our daughter and son-in-law, they have the audacity to think that our granddaughter ought to live with them and not with us. And so we can have quiet time in the morning work perfectly well. And you get what I'm saying? There's seasons of life where different things work differently for each other. But if you want to be a finisher... If you want and dream and hope for the life you've always wanted, then take this advice into the essence of your being. Train yourself for a holy life. For while physical training has some value, training in holy living is useful for everything. It is promise for this life now and the life to come. We work and struggle for this. Our hope, our hope is set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe.